0: and welcome back to the Bicycle Mechanics Podcast. This week we're going to do a couple stories. I'm going to do one uh, story from the road. It's going to be a story about my friend Dave Pitts and his first trip to Europe with the U.S. national team. And then I'm going to do a little story about shop personalities. As I've stated before, if you'd like to leave me any feedback or info or say hello or anything, just drop me an email to thebicyclemechanicspodcast at gmail.com. You can also check us out on Instagram at thebicyclemechanicspodcast. So, for my first story, as I said, we're going to talk a little bit about my friend Dave Pitts, who now lives in upstate New York, about his first trip to Europe uh, with the United States Cycling Federation. So, Dave had been working at a bike shop and then he worked at Serrata for a while, um, after that. And then he came to Colorado Springs in, I believe he recalls June or July of 1993. And he was, um, kind of helping out, uh, at the Olympic training center with training camps and whatnot, kind of how I got started as well. And, uh, he was uh, surprised to find out that after he had been there for a while, Doug Hatfield, who was in charge of the mechanics program at the time, um, told Dave that he was going to go work the Women's Tour de France uh, in, in 1993 there, in the summer of 93. So off Dave went to Europe to do his first trip as a race mechanic in Europe, and be, it would be his first time going to Europe Overall, as well. So, kind of a double whammy there. So, when I talked to Dave about this, you know, I asked him, you know, what his first thoughts were about, about going to Europe and uh, working a stage race. And he didn't really recall, uh, really, about how he felt about it. But all he did re- recall was that he had only worked a stage race um, once before, and that was at, at Redlands um, in Southern California with the Simply Fit team. Uh, he and another uh, guy that I got to work with a bit, uh, Christoph uh, S-I-N, um, who also later worked with me a little bit and worked for the Volvo Cannondale team. So it was kind of early in uh, Christoph's uh, race mechanic career as well. So Christoph and Dave um, were, were going to work with this team um, at Redlands, where you stay kind of at host housing and uh, really usually in really nice, big, beautiful houses and Um, so they were, they were going to be the two mechanics for this team, but what happened was, um, after a few days of, of the Redlands race, uh, there were some crashes and some of the, the racers on the the Simply Fit team, um, had to withdraw and eventually, uh, pretty quickly, as a matter of fact, the whole team just dropped out, um, dropped out of the race and they told Dave and Kristoff that, uh, that they were, that they were done. They were leaving and Dave and Kristoff were like, um little disappointed and kind of like well what are we what are we supposed to do now and the director of that team uh said well we can give you a ride somewhere and so I don't know how it worked out but Dave and Christoph ended up um switching over and working with uh the Mavic uh neutral support uh for the net the rest of that Redlands uh race so that that kind of short stage race in the U.S. was Dave's uh first stage race he had worked so he didn't have uh, much experience with that so um back at the training center when he was told he was going to go on this trip doug helped him uh helped him pack for the trip because um, doug kind of had a better sense of what would be needed to bring to europe and set him up with all the bike parts that he would need and five sets of wheels for spare wheels and um kind of uh Brought Dave to the airport with all his bike bags, um, which is uh, one of the things as a team mechanic you travel with are a bunch of bike bags with uh, bikes and wheels and parts and sometimes water bottles and drink mixes for the sworn ear. Um just kind of everything that you would need uh, to, to work a race for a couple weeks. Um, Got to kind of bring it all with you because you can't, can't get it over there. Um, you probably could, but you don't know who to get it from, so you bring it with you that's kind of what we do. So Dave and, uh, Mari Holden, um, left from Colorado Springs, um, and then met up with, uh, the other teammates. Um, I know Louisa Jenkins was one of them. And, um, I think Sherry Kane, I think might've been another racer on the team. They kind of met up with some of the other teammates at, um, at the Chicago airport. Um, and then, um, After that, they jump on a plane and got to um, fly all the way overseas to the Charles de Gaulle Airport um, there in Paris. So one of the things to kind of keep in mind at this point in this story is that back in 1993, we didn't have cell phones. Um, We didn't have a lot of the Bonnard conveniences we have nowadays, um, all the electronic stuff that we have that we can carry with us. So... Basically, uh, Dave was given an envelope with cash in it, a um, couple thousand dollars in cash, I believe, and uh, some contact info um, and the name of the director that would be uh, kind of the team director for the for the women's tour over there, and that was Yak Beck um, and he wasn't even sure how he would know uh, who Yarek Beck was, and uh, he asked one of the, the one of the girls on the team, I guess had worked with him before and said. Um, said well you'll know him he'll be the guy with uh, the adidas shorts and sandals um he'll be he'll, that, that's the look he's going to have and uh, he's coming from poland so um kind of kept a lookout for him and they got to the airport landed at charles de gaulle and they waited for about five hours before yark even showed up um dave recalls kind of sitting uh in the middle of all the bike bags he had them all around him so he could keep an eye on him on the bike bags um just kind of waiting for their ride um waiting for the the beginning of this adventure um so eventually uh after about 5 hours uh Yarik did show up in a, a little Toyota Corolla um and he asked Dave he said uh he said where's the van um and Dave Dave said well, I don't have a vehicle <laughs> so he said all I have is this uh, envelope of cash and uh and I'm supposed to give this to you. So he, he gave it to Yarick and Yark uh, took the, the envelope and went and uh, he got a, a kind of a loaner van um, from the airport to be able to get everything to um, to the hotel, to the youth hostel, I believe they were staying at. And uh, so this is this is where it gets kind of funny, because Yarrick uh, tells Dave, he says, Dave, he says, just, you know, just follow me. And Dave, you know, being Dave, you know, wanting to plan it out or know where he's going, says, Well, can you give me some information on where the hotel is or you know, an address or a phone number or something in case we get lost? And the and and Yarick says, you know, basically, no, just follow me. So as soon as they get on the freeway, Yarick shoots across three lanes across traffic on the freeway and basically loses Dave and I think it's Sherry Kane with him immediately, just gone. Um, and, it, and on top of all this, they couldn't fit everybody in all the cars. So they had to leave yark's friend, the Polish uh, swanier that he brought with him. They had to leave him at the airport. So so this leaves Dave and, and Sherry kind of on their own. And they're like, uh, Dave's like, I don't know what to do. So they basically just get a hotel room. And, uh, and once they get the hotel room and get checked in, um, Dave says, well, I guess I better go back to the airport and see if I can find this one ear um, that that Yark brought with him and then left him at the airport because there was no room for him. So went back, couldn't find him anywhere. Um, and then I think I think it was maybe the the next day, the next morning. Um, Sherry uh, went out for a ride, uh, and she found her teammates um, out riding. So they were able to find out where they were staying. I guess apparently it wasn't too far away from where where Dave uh, and Sherry had spent the night. So they all ended up back together at the hostel, uh, the youth hostel. And then uh, during that time, uh, the, the loner van has to be returned. So, so Jarek uh, takes, um, takes the train back to uh, Poland to pick up his Mercedes van. Um, and uh, while he was gone and they were at the hosp- hostel, some kind of interesting things happened. Um, so apparently one night uh, at the hostel the, some of the guests rooms, um, were, were gassed. Um, so they would, they would pump some gas into the room and kind of block the, the vents so that the, uh, so that the guests sleeping, uh, would just pass out and not, not, not wake up for a while. So, um, I remember Dave, Dave had said that in Mari's room, she had about $200 stolen, um, so, and they tried to get into Dave's room, um, but Dave woke up in time and, uh, woke up to someone like running away down the hallway. So kind of a, kind of a pretty rough start. If you think about it, your first trip to Europe, uh, to work a bike race and you think it's going to be one thing and it turns out to be another, um, <laughs> which is often the case when it comes to these kind of first trips, uh, first adventures, um, if you will. So, um. And on top of all this, uh, at the time, uh, the same company that, that sponsored the tour, uh, Credit uh, Lyonnais, uh, sponsored the women's tour. But for some reason, they pulled out right before the race started, uh, not too long before the race started. So they um, the the race received a huge downgrade in housing and food. Um, basically, the budget just turned out to be a lot lower than it would have been with, with the sponsor. So... Um, they often had uh had ham and butter uh on baguettes for meals and they stayed at a lot of cheap hotels um kind of rough you know but i guess if it's your first trip to europe maybe it doesn't matter as much to you cuz you are in europe and it's all new and kind of exciting but um looking back on it uh dave said it was it was kind of sad um so for the caravan car they used um use Yark's Toyota Corolla uh, for the caravan, um, which worked out okay. I guess they had some bike racks on it and stuff. So, um, the race was about a week and a half to two weeks long. Um, uh, the mechanic set up, you know, as Dave talked about his first trip to Europe, he said sometimes, uh, they had to use well water and uh, do the bucket brigade thing. If uh, you've ever done that, um, Kind of takes a little bit of a a while to get the bikes clean, but it it does the trick, not ideal. Um, And then there's the other term that that, uh, Dave used, which I had forgotten about. It was called uh, the uh, the hose brigade. So the hose brigade is when a bunch of mechanics from different teams get together and everyone uses their hose and they connect them to each other so that they can reach from the water source down to the work area. So that's the hose brigade. dave said that um, all the other mechanics were pretty cool Um, they all seemed to get along kind of all in it together Um, he got to work with um, there was one female mechanic there uh, i think her name was lucy and she was um, working with the canadian national team dave Dave had mentioned uh he had he had met lucy before at the uscf uh, us cycling federation mechanic clinic I believe earlier that year. Um, so they kind of kind of knew each other. So he had someone that he knew that he could talk to and mentioned uh, before. Some of the other mechanics were, were pretty nice. Um, the only, um, one of the places they stayed, the only access uh, through where they were working was to go through the kitchen. And uh, there was a Swedish mechanic who kind of went through the kitchen one time and swiped a couple bottles of wine for the mechanics, which I thought was kind of cool. A um, couple of the other notes that Dave kind of remembers about the race. Um, Given that at this point, you know, we're talking almost 30 years ago. um, He remembers being up late often, uh, working under like a single light bulb kind of late at night. Um, And I kind of had this experience, too, when I worked in, in Italy. I remember the first time I went to Europe, I was working in like a hallway in a hotel and it had a timed light. And I would turn it on and it would turn off every eight minutes or so. So I'd have to walk back over and turn it back on remember kind of working late at night with dim lights. Um, another one of the things you remember is you remember is the, they did a team time trial. Um, and they were warming up uh, before the race. And there was uh, some of the girls crashed. Um, uh, kind of a weird, just kind of working a team time trial is just kind of a mechanics nightmare. I think I've gone over this in a, an episode before. But, you know, in a, in a national team situation, you're working with... Um, riders who racers who are on different trade teams who, so they all have different equipment. Um, you're not doing the thing where you're on a working a pro team and everybody's got the same bike and the same wheels. This is kind of a hodgepodge of different, uh, components and, and wheels and such. So it does make it a bit more difficult as a mechanic. Um, uh, and the, the time trial bikes weren't time trial bikes. They're kind of just road bikes with clip on arrow bars. Um, and then the, a couple of the other things you remember is that the transfers um, during this race were sounded pretty, pretty awful because they often had transfers uh, before the race and after the race. So it made for a super long day. So you get up in the morning, load up the bikes on the car, drive to the start of the race, which could be an hour or two away, do the race start stuff, race for two, three, four hours, and then load back up um, the bikes and stuff, and then drive another couple hours to where you're going to spend the night. So, and during this time when they're doing all these transfers, it's, it's during a time when there's a trucker strike going on. So, um, kind of, kind of blocking up the roads and just making things difficult. And they're trying to get the racer, you know, trying to do these transfers with some, some police escorts, you know, from start to finish and and transferring and, and such, but it's still, still a little bit crazy out there. And the fact that, that Yark, Bre- Yark Beck can be kind of a crazy driver um, as a director, I remember, um, was, uh, was something that kind of added to the to now, looking back on it, the comic part of it. But maybe then, maybe not so funny. So Dave remembers having the, the bikes on the top of the, the roof rack and putting uh, the bike bags in between the bikes um, because they didn't have anywhere to leave any of the stuff behind. Um, you had to take it all with you. Um, that's changed over the years now there's usually arrangements made to leave that kind of stuff behind but I've done races where we could leave it behind and ones where we couldn't and it's a huge difference in the amount of of baggage you just have to carry with you um can make your days really long um so I asked I kind of asked Dave I said what were some of the um what were some of the most memorable things about um working his first race uh in in Europe and first real stage race um uh, they got to spend some time in the Pyrenees, which was quite memorable, I would imagine, and got to stay at a little small, a lot of small kind of hotels in the mountains um, that were kind of closed down uh, because they're really there for the ski season. So kind of beautiful places to be. Um, and one of the things about this race that he mentioned was that um, at the starts and at the finishes, particularly at the starts, they were, the, they were kind of in a lot of wine and champagne regions. Um, of, of France and, and they would give out free wine and champagne at the start um, kind of to promote the region and uh, the police often got bottles of wine um, and even sometimes uh, the directors would as well um, and uh, Dave remembers that there were a couple double stage days and if anybody doesn't know a double stage day is when you get up and you work a race in the morning and then you have a break for a few hours and then you have an afternoon or early evening race as well. Um, these days can be really hard. Um, and he remembers in between one of the double days, uh, directors from some of the other teams were taking their, their one liter, uh, Avion water bottles and fit and emptying out the water and filling them with wine. Um, so these guys were, were, were drinking the wine while they were driving in the caravan, which, um, I'm pretty sure that never happens anymore, Um, but not being there all the time, I can't say that with 100% accuracy. Um, And whenever they would have lunch, there was always wine at lunch. Um, So there was some drinking going on, which um, I can understand uh, in that situation. So on on kind of the final note um, of Dave's trip to, um, first trip to Europe, uh, one of the funniest things he told me about was the final stage of the race was up Alp Duez. and for anyone who's a cycling fan at all um, understands uh, you know the all the hairpin switchback turns going up the hill to uh, to the top of Alp Duez there. So it was the final stage um, r- raced up to Alp Duez and then they had an after race party at the top and of course there was more wine and champagne and food and um, just kind of a big party at the top, which, um, he had never told me about before. I'd never heard this story, but the problem wasn't having the party at the top. The part, the problem was after the party was over, everyone got on buses and took the buses back down the switchbacks to the bottom of the hill. So apparently a bunch of people got sick and, uh, Dave said it was pretty gross. This, the, the bus smelled, uh, smelled pretty bad by the end. And, uh, he was thankful that he was, uh, he had his fair share of wine and he did sleep on part of the way down, but um, sounds pretty, uh, pretty interesting, pretty gnarly, actually. So that was Dave's first trip to Europe, and uh, thankfully Dave made it back and was able to do uh, many more trips to Europe and all over the rest of the world as well. So, so for my next uh, little piece here, I'd like to do a little, um, a little bit about shop personalities Um, We'll transition a little bit from being on the road to working in the bike shop. So anyone who's worked in a bike shop um, for any amount of time understands that there are several different types of bike shop employees and owners. So I kind of made a list, um, and I'll introduce you to the whole list, and we'll probably just have time to go through maybe the first five today uh, more in depth. But kind of had a good time writing this. It kind of brought me back, uh, brought back some memories of... uh, Some of the people I worked with, the people and personalities um, in the bike shop uh, world. So um, here's just a few that I can think of uh, and I'll follow it by some real life examples of people I actually worked with and for. So um, the first one that came to mind, the number one was uh, the grumpy old tech who can either manifest as Obi-Wan and be a mentor and a champion of good or as a Sith pulling you towards the dark areas of the profession. Uh, Number two is the independent shop owner who will often appear to carry the weight of the world on his or her shoulders. Number three would be the young road racer, shaved legs and all. Number four would be the entry-level tech who used to work on cars. Number five, the older part-time mechanic who has a full-time job but likes working on bikes. Number six would be the mechanic who is really good, but wants out of the industry for a better paying job. Number seven would be the kid who gets paid, or maybe not, to sweep and keep the shop clean. Number eight is the I know mechanic. Number nine is the tinkerer Number 10 is the pig pen. Number 11 is the anal retentive. Number 12 is the talker. Number 13 is the toiler. So those are just 13 that I covered and I think I'll probably be able to come up with some more as you probably could as well. So um, th- these are just a few of the, of the types of bike shop workers. Uh, we've all encountered in our time most likely um, this is not to say that someone is just one of these types. Uh, they can be a combination of a couple of these. Um, an example would be the talker can also be the pig pen. Um, so kinda let's uh, let's get into it. Um, let's start with number one, the grumpy older mechanic. Uh, let's, let's be honest, the older seasoned mechanics are often grumpy. They can be helpful when they're in uh, in, in the mood to be or they may just let the less experienced mechanics flounder for a while before helping them Honestly, I do that all the time So my first experience with uh, this type was after I had been at a shop for a couple of years uh, the first shop I worked at and Wayne C- Wayne Culpepper came on as the lead mechanic um, and we hit it off immediately He had all the knowledge and humor uh, any any shop could ever ask for. He was a Vietnam veteran, a uh, recovering alcoholic. Um, he had an edge to him that was, that was special. He would tell us dirty jokes, and we'd get in trouble for, uh, from the owner and his dad for laughing too much. <laughs> As with mentors, I often still hear his voice inside my head. Um, an example would be once uh, a kid racer was watching Wayne uh, starting the process of gluing some tubulars, And the kid asked um why are you going so slow with the with the glue application and wayne uh wayne simply answered if if i'm in a hurry to get to glue the tires on they will be in a hurry to come off the rims Um, pretty good i still hear that in my head when i glue tires Um, so uh, then let's go on to number two number two is the independent shop owner I've dealt with a few independent shop owners and the first one um, I ever worked for was a good person but seemed to struggle uh, with money management. He'd often buy too many bikes and parts and tools for himself. Uh, He didn't seem to put a lot of money back into the shop. Um, His retired dad helped out a lot with uh, sales floor duties and bookkeeping uh it it seemed like he put some of his own money into the shop uh, trying to support his son as well um the owner uh his son his son often was uh stressed out about money my relationship with them uh, convinced me to never own my own bike shop um number 3 would be the young racer shaved legs and all uh this fellow or girl worker uh can be awesome at times and a disaster at times as well. Gear-driven, a little out of touch with some customers at times except for fellow racers. Um, Number four would be the entry-level tech who used to work on cars. Um, This one is super entertaining to work with because they, in my experience, tend to over-tighten everything. Um, I've worked with a few of these folks and uh, without a torque wrench, which we didn't use much back in uh, my early days Uh, stuff was always snapping and stripping when they were working on it Um, funny for me to watch but not so much for the stressed-out owner and number five is the last one we'll go over today and that is the older part-time mechanic who has a full-time job but likes working on bikes Uh, this mechanic enjoys learning and often takes feedback well I've worked with several of these folks and they often either quit pretty quickly because the job is not what they thought it would be or in some cases they end up quitting, quitting their other job and coming full time because they love it so much. Um, in one case in my career we had a designer who started part time in sales and then started in the shop and really seemed to enjoy it. Eventually he bought his own shop uh, unfortunately right before COVID hit. Um, we once had a guy working uh, part-time um, for us. Uh, P- pg and was his full-time job, um, and he would make more uh, work for us by breaking things, often bending wheels by tensioning them and stressing them. Uh, I remember one time he he blew a tire off the rim, and his beard blew back and got filled with the talc from the tube. It was pretty funny, and the look on his face was kind of priceless. Um, but anyway, that's the older part-time mechanic, um, number five. And uh, next week, we will do um, the rest of the list. We will um, work our way all the way down to number 13, the toiler, one of my favorites, and uh, probably add a few more after that. But anyway, in the meantime, thanks for, uh, thanks for listening once again. Um, this is the Bicycle Mechanics Podcast. And don't forget to send me an email if you have any questions. Uh, Concerns or questions or comments to the bicycle mechanics podcast at gmail.com. Once again, I really appreciate you listening. Have a great day.